Spring into reading this season with the Biblio Lifestyle 2024 Spring Reading Guide. In this season's guide, I've handpicked 21 of the best new books and I've organized them across six categories. So whether you're looking for a romance novel that will give you a happily ever after, a thrilling mystery to keep you guessing, or an immersive historical fiction book, this guide has a book or three or seven just for you. Now, if 21 books sounds like too much for you, there's a minimalist reads list in the guide, which includes a list of six must-read books from across genres. But wait, that's not all. The spring reading guide also includes fun recipes, spring activities and lifestyle tips. So head on over to springreadingguide.com and download your copy of the guide. That's springreadingguide.com and download your free copy of the 2024 spring reading guide. So download your free copy and discover your next favorite book. Happy reading! Welcome to The Reader's Couch, a podcast that brings you lively conversations with some of your favorite authors and bookish personalities. Over here, the couch is always booked, but I've moved some books to the side table and fluffed some cushions so I can welcome a guest or two to come lounge with us. Today on the couch, we have Ming Chang an author whose debut novel tells the story of three generations of Taiwanese-American women. It's a story of family, migration, queer lineage, girlhood, and buried secrets. Stay tuned! Readers, get ready for cosy reading and all the autumnal feels with the Biblio Lifestyle 2021 Fall Reading List. This year's guide has a total of 42 books organized across seven categories, so you can head straight to your favorite genres if you prefer. We also have one category that's dedicated to the minimalist reader. And our minimalist reads list has eight titles that we highly recommend if you're only planning to pick up a few reads this fall. In the guide, you'll also find some fun recipes, things to do at home, and tips to improve your reading life. So download your free copy of the guide and see the books that made the list over at bibliolifestyle.com forward slash 2021 FRL. That's bibliolifestyle.com forward slash 2021 FRL. I'll also include a link in the show notes so you can sign up there. Hi readers, welcome again to The Reader's Couch. I'm your host, Victoria Wood, and here on the couch with me is a Lambda Literary Award finalist, National Book Foundation 5 Under 5 honoree, and her debut novel was longlisted for the Centre for Fiction First Novel Prize, the Penn Faulkner Award, and it was a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice Selection. So I'm thrilled to have on the couch to celebrate the one-year book birthday of Bestiary, 
please welcome to the couch, K-Ming Chang. Hey, K-Ming. Hi, it's so great to talk to you. Yay, I'm thrilled we could have you on the show. So your debut novel, Bestiary, has been out in the world for one year now, which is wild to me. <laughs> you know, tell me about the experience. How has the past year been? Yeah, it was, it's definitely, I don't know, been really surreal. <laughs> but it's really amazing because I feel like this book is kind of like my daughter or something. It kind of has a life, <laughs> life of her own and has reached so many more people than I ever imagined. And so it's really exciting to kind of have a bit of detachment from it and kind of see it, I don't know, live its own life. (laughs) Yeah, definitely living its own life for sure. So for those readers who missed out on Bestiary, you know, tell us about the novel and what can readers who are new picking up this book, what can they expect going in? Yeah, so this book is kind of part family saga, part love story, and part mythological retelling. Um, And it follows three generations of Taiwanese-American women um, and kind of kicks off with the third generation of the family called Daughter. And she grows a tiger tail overnight and has to excavate her family history in order to figure out how this tale came to be and what it means for her. So what inspired you to write the actual book? I mean, give us some behind the scenes details on your early thought processes and just the spark that lit this idea. Yeah, so I come from a poetry background. So I always thought that I would only ever write poetry. I read a lot of poetry. I never really thought that I would ever write prose or attempt something as intimidating (laughs) and scary as a novel. But one day I was in a class that was called Poetry, Memoir, and Photography, which is taught by a really brilliant poet named Rachel Liza Griffiths. And I was there for the poetry and photography part of it. But of course, memoir, I got kind of snuck into the mix of the class. Um, And so we were all assigned to bring in like a micro memoir piece, just like a thousand words of memoir. And I was very, very intimidated. It ended up being very like fantastical and fabulous because I was like, I don't, the truth, I don't know. (laughs) Facts, I don't know about that. And actually that piece ended up being the first thing that I wrote for the novel. I just continued to expand it and allow it to get more and more fantastical. And of course it became entirely fictional, but that was the original seed of it. And that actually, that first piece actually never made it into the final draft. So it's really interesting to see how it kind of grew into all these vines and yeah, ended up becoming a long form project that I just didn't expect. Wow. That's amazing. So one of the elements, because this is a multi-genre novel, I, I remember struggling trying to figure what category I was going to put this book in. <laughs> I mean, as a reader, just myself, I would say, okay, it borders magical realism, but there's so many different elements. But the one element that stuck out to me was the generational saga, mm-hmm. that section there. So for readers who are unfamiliar, we meet a grandmother we meet a mother, we meet a daughter. So three generations of Taiwanese women. And the way you wrote about these women, it was very moving for me. And I also appreciated how you kind of stared away from tropes when it Mm -hmm. comes to generational interaction and conflict. Because this book kind of centers on conflict quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But you just kind of gave us a new way to think about how 
the younger generation and the older generation might interact and relate and maybe even influence each other. I mean, mm-hmm. was this something intentional that you thought about? Because it was very profound for me. Oh, thank you so much for bringing that up. That, that was also a deeply important part of what motivated me to write this book because I wasn't really interested in the trope of this idea of the next generation kind of breaking free of the past and just being in direct resistance to people, to the women who came before her, or this idea that somehow the older generations are just kind of a purely oppressive force and some kind of just purely repressive. I was more interested in the ways that the younger generation circles back to the older generation and how there's this constant kind of looping and circling of the generations that it isn't so linear. I mean, we say lineage and, it, and we kind of assume that there's a kind of linearity, but I was really interested in what does it mean for things like intergenerational trauma and memory and history to be kind of continuously inherited and circled, um, circled and circled and circled and obsessed over rather than this idea that you somehow move farther and farther away from something with, with each generation. I wanted all three women of each generation for their voices to kind of rhyme and to be very similar And I purposefully used a kind of similar vocabulary. There are certain words that were in all three perspectives that my editor would highlight and be like, oh, do you mean for this word to keep popping up in all three of their sections, for this kind of vocabulary to be in all three of their voices? And I was like, oh, yes, that is very purposeful because I'm more interested in what makes them similar and what kind of binds their memories together than I am in, oh, what makes them different and what is the the biggest generational divide I can create between them. Yeah. Awesome. So I want to ask you about the cover for this book because I mm-hmm. loved it. <laughs> How <laughs> did you too. feel about it? Did it translate for you? Because again, as a reader, it did for me. It, not only did it catch my attention, but, you know, the tale, which is something I'm going to ask you about next, but just just the cover, like, how did you feel about the cover design? Did it translate for you? I love talking about the cover because it's one of my favorite things uh, to talk about in relation to the book. I A lot of people say that it's kind of like a scavenger hunt where you'll find certain things in the book and then go back and look at the cover and realize, oh, that's, you know, that's what this bird is. That's what these letters are. That's what this bone is. I love that. I love the idea that the cover is a kind of map of what's inside the book and that you can kind of go back and forth between the text and the cover to see the elements on the cover in a new light or a new context. I think that's so amazing. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw it, I was actually really skeptical, which is really funny because now I adore it so much. But (laughs) I think the reason why I was skeptical was I was like, oh, maybe it's too girly, maybe it's too feminine. And then the more that I talked about it, the more I realized that that was kind of a weird, like internalized Thing because I want I was writing about women and I wanted it to be a feminine book and I wanted it to be a very girl centric, woman centric book and yet I had this kind of strange dissonance with how I felt about the cover and I was like no I should embrace the femininity of it because that is what this book is about <laughs> and what I want to write about so I was able to realize that I was just kind of applying a different gaze to it that. And that actually this cover was really perfect for the content of the book and for what I was trying to do as a writer. Yeah. I'm one of those weird readers. I'm searching for the title. I'm searching for the cover (laughs) design. So as I was reading, it definitely kind of just came together for me and it just made me love the cover even more. Mm. 
But one of the most standout uh, bits of the cover outside of the bones it, and, you know, the, what do you call that? The tiger print mm. is the tail. Mm. So I want to know about the, our heroine's tail because it's our heroine who has this tail. She's wondering, you know, wh- where did this tail appear from? And it happened after she was being beaten for, mm. you know, doing the holes. Mm. So, you know, where did this idea for the tail come from? You know, what, why the focus on the tail? And also, you know, what inspired the idea for the tail? Mm, yeah, so it's really funny because in the original draft, um, before I went through edits with my editor, the tail probably lasted only a chapter, maybe only 10 to 15 pages, and then it was immediately gone. And I remember in the editorial process, my editor asking me, what does this tale mean for the main character? And what might it look like if this tale was a kind of through line or tether for the book and the reader? And that really sparked something in me. And I, I started to write the tale as kind of its own character in a way. And I realized that it was a really complicated inheritance, that on one hand, there is something really beautiful and magical about it. And on the other hand, it kind of represented this fear that the, the narrator has about turning into a predator or having this capacity for violence that she feels like she's inherited. So the tale to me became this very complicated double-edged sword <laughs> uh, for the for the narrator where on one hand, she can c- kind of control it and wield it in some ways. And on the other hand, it feels like she's being taken over um, and that she doesn't have agency over it. And I was really interested in like the complicated yeah, meanings of that in terms of thinking about Uh, What does it mean to come from violence or to inherit both the capacity to do violence and also from people who have experienced a lot of violence? Yeah, so it ended up being a bit of a mystery for me, too. (laughs) But I think that's that's right for for the character, that it should be kind of should kind of have multiple meanings or yeah, different things that it could represent. Right, right. Absolutely. So I mentioned earlier, one of the things I latched onto first was just the generational dynamics. Mm. But I would be remiss not to mention the novel's queerness, Mm. because that's also a very important element in the story. Where do you see your book fitting in with pre-existing queer novels, but also how important was it to you to include this storyline as well? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, there are so many influences and kind of queer books that I was thinking about. One of them was We the Animals by Justin Torres, which is a kind of queer coming-of-age novel. Trash by Dorothy Allison, which I loved because so much of it is about desire. And so much of this book is about women's desires of all kinds. And yeah, I think for me, it really came down to thinking about what does belonging mean and how can there be new forms of belonging within a family, within a country, one of the first pieces that I wrote for this is the the pirate story. <laughs> There's a chapter with the narrator's kind of, I think, great-great-grandfathers. And I was really interested in this idea that the sea represented not only an escape from the nation, but also it allows them to find belonging with each other away from kind of traditional family structures. And I thought there was something really beautiful and subversive about that. Um, and also, I think, resonated with, at the time I was at the time I was taking an Asian American history class and I remember reading a lot about one of the things that kind of like villainized the Chinese immigrants who first um, came to California was this idea that they were all men and therefore there was a kind of queer queerness to them. 
Um, and I was really interested in that as well. I was like, oh, what does it mean to be seen as alien in all these different ways? And how can I recenter that and reinvent it in thinking about, yeah, what does it mean to have a queer lineage and belong to queerness? I love it. I love it. So, K-Ming, now I'm really curious about your reading life. Um, <laughs> you know, we've talked about Bestiary. You know, this was your debut novel that you wrote. But what are you reading right now? And what books are you looking forward to reading in the year ahead? Yeah, I mean, there's so many amazing books that I've recently read. There's a book that just came out called Ghost Forest by Pik Shuen Fung that is absolutely brilliant and I'm very lucky to know Pixuan as well. And she just inspires me so much. And I'm currently reading Annie John by Jamaica Kincaid. I'd read her short stories, but I, I never read a novel by her. And she is such an inspiration to me. And her language is so beautiful and dense. And so I'm really excited to be reading that. And then recently, I finished reading a book called How to Pronounce Knives by Suvantan Tamavonsa, which is also an incredible short story collection and makes me think a lot about like coming of age stories. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for sharing. And we're big supporters here for our local indie bookstores. We ask all our guests on the show. So now I'm asking you to share with us some of your favorite local bookstores. Yeah, I there are so many that I love, but one that comes to mind immediately is one that I've actually just recently discovered, um, and it's called Recycle Bookstore. There are two locations in the Bay Area. And what I love about that store is, first of all, there are cats. So any bookstore with cats, <laughs> I'm there. But they have a mix of used books and new books. And I just love the environment, the atmosphere. It kind of feels like every single time you're in there, you're a treasure hunter and you're just looking around and you end up with something that you didn't even know you were looking for. It feels like an adventure to be in there. And of course, the cat's always a plus. <laughs> always a plus, for sure. Okay, so we are here because we're celebrating one year of bestiary being out there in the world. But I want to get into your writing life now. Uh, you know, are you working on any other projects right now? You know, are there any books in our future? What can you tell us? Yeah, uh, there's definitely, I always have something kind of brewing. <laughs> But I have a short story collection that's coming out next year in July that I'm very excited about called Gods of Want. And I'm also currently working on a couple other projects. And just this year, I had a chapbook come out that's a retelling of Wuthering Heights called Bone House. So quite a few things on the burner. <laughs> Yay, so exciting, so exciting. So your book's been out, Bestiary, for a year. Again, I know. <laughs> But so you've definitely been seeing some reviews, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure readers have gotten in touch, you've seen social media, good reads, just all the good stuff. You know, were the reactions what you were hoping for? Did readers get some of the thoughts? And, you know, yes and no, but also what were you hoping for with this book? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one thing that has helped me like help me embrace this book because you know as the writer of it I'm always my worst critic <laughs> I mean I always tend to see its flaws and think about what it could have been rather than to see the beauty of what it is and I think that hearing from readers has really helped me love my own work in a lot of ways which has been really incredible and I do feel like this book has found its readership and that yeah I'm just I just feel so much gratitude especially hearing from other queer Asian readers who talk to me about, oh, 
you know, this book made me feel all these things and have empathy for the characters. Like all of those things have just been so rewarding for me. And yeah, I just always remember like how many people have helped kind of ferry this book into the world and be like the midwives of this book. And it just, yeah, feels really tremendous and really incredible. Well, I'm thrilled to hear it because I absolutely adored this book. I was so grateful to see it. So I highly recommend it. And I hope folks will find comfort in, you know, a familiar story, especially, Mm. you know, immigrant culture. If you're a person of color, if you're a person from the diaspora, you know, just the story of alienation, you know, survival, but also beauty, resilience. It was just beautiful. And I'm so happy it made it out there in the world. And I'm grateful that you decided to hop on the podcast with me. K-Ming, it was a thrill to have you on the show. Oh, no, thank you for celebrating B-Series birthday. Um, That's so exciting. It's like, yay, one-year-old. And thank you for your lovely and thoughtful questions as well. Oh, I appreciate it. Hip, hip, hooray! It's one year! Readers, I had so much fun with author K-Ming Chang. It was such a treat to celebrate Bestiary's one-year book birthday, and I really want to thank her for coming and lounging on the couch with us. This week will be a huge publication week for so many authors. There will be a flood of books gracing shelves on Tuesday, September 28th, But today, I'm going to spotlight 20 new and noteworthy titles for you to keep on your radar. If you're in the market for some non-fiction, I highly recommend Credible by Deborah Turkenheimer and Feeding the Soul by Tabitha Brown. If you're looking for a cosy mystery, get your hands on Mrs. Claus and the Halloween Homicide by Liz Ireland. If you're looking for literary fiction... There are two highly anticipated novels that are out this week. We have Chronicles from the Land of the Happiest People on Earth by Woli Soyinka and The Morning Star by Karl Ove Nogsgaard, translated by Martin Aitken. In historical fiction, the highly anticipated Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doer is out this week. If you're looking for books with themes of family and friendship, I highly recommend Black Girls Must Die Exhausted by Jane Allen, as well as Out of Love by Hazel Hayes. If you're looking for romance, there are a bunch of books that will be available this week. We have The X-Hex by Erin Sterling, Eight Perfect Hours by Leah Lewis, The Inn on Sweetbriar Lane by Jeannie Chin, the Sweetest Remedy by Jane Igharu. It started with A Dog by Julia London and Infamous by Minerva Spencer. If you're looking for some thrillers, mysteries and suspense novels, available this week is We Know You Remember by Tove Alsterdahl and The Man Who Died Twice by Richard Osmond. For our science fiction and fantasy readers, we have Light from Uncommon Stars by Raika Aoki, Summer Suns by Lee Mandelo, The Last House on Needless Street by Catriona Ward, and The Seven Visitations of Sydney Burgess by Andy Marino. 
You can find a list with all these books and their summaries, along with the show notes, over at thereaderscouch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in to The Reader's Couch. You can find out more about the show and submit your questions for our guest by visiting our website, thereaderscouch.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Couch Is Booked. If you like the show, please subscribe, share, and take a few seconds to leave a rating and review. Next week, I'll be back with new guests, more books, and some fun games we can play. But until then, stay lounging, stay reading, and whenever you're in doubt, go straight to your local bookstore or library. Thanks for listening and happy reading.